Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I love today's episode so much. I speak with Kat Meyer, founder of the brand Head South and host of Head South Radio, a podcast devoted to inclusive, comprehensive sex education for all stages of life. It's a fantastic podcast devoted to removing the stigma and shame around conversations about sex and sexual health. Kat and I explore the relationship between food and sex. Kat shares how food impacts our libido and sexual health, and she shares some foods that can help support us. We talk about timing and sex, and spoiler alert, if you don't feel like having sex after a big, heavy meal, it's okay. Me neither. (laughs) Kat shares ways that you can explore your own preferences and communicate them to your partner. Kat also shares how food can be a powerful tool to tap into our own pleasure. Through understanding our pleasure through the lens of food, we can better understand what brings us pleasure in the bedroom. We discuss how, as humans, we are sensual beings and how there's so much to be gained when we embrace our sensual experience. I had a huge awakening moment near the end of our conversation relating my own mindfulness practice of intentional eating to the bedroom. So if you're new to the podcast, I have a whole episode and newsletter series all about intentional eating that I will link to in the show notes. But I realized that we can use those exact same tools. We're talking breathing, engaging our senses, setting intentions, and expressing gratitude to gain more intimacy in the bedroom, both with our partners and with ourselves. Cat called this intentional intimacy, which I absolutely love. And finally, at the start of the episode, Kat shares her background growing up in Pennsylvania with her Filipino family. We get into Filipino food and her mother's cooking, and Kat shared with me a recipe for chicken adobo, which I have included in the newsletter. So definitely hop over there to get the recipe. I can tell you firsthand that it is absolutely delicious. As always, if this work resonates with you or inspires you, a really easy way that you can support it is by leaving a comment or rating the podcast on your podcast app. That really goes a long way. You can share it with your friends or you can sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit food newsletter. In the newsletter, I share weekly recipes plus tips for bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the kitchen. And by becoming a paid subscriber, you support all of this work. So thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, my friends, let's dive into the show. Hi, Kat. Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for having me. This is going to be such a fabulous conversation. Can't wait to dive into it, but I'm going to start by asking you the first question that I ask all of my guests. And that is, what is your cultural upbringing and how has that influenced your relationship to food? Well, my cultural upbringing, I was born in the Philippines and we moved to America when I was three. 
Mm. And so I'm half Filipino and then half Irish, German, French mixed. And I was raised in Pennsylvania, which is where my father grew up. And so I have an interesting relationship to the food and my culture and identity when it comes to the Filipino side of me. And so as a child, I was thinking about this of like, I felt othered, you know, I think it was really interesting growing up. My mother, I've heard this a lot in a lot of Filipino cultures, like Filipino women will find one another and, you know, have clubs and we would have picnics and we would go to Christmas parties. It was majority of Filipino people Mm. and lots of Filipino food, but growing up and socially my friends, they were all very white. And so I remember, you know, being judged or being told like your family eats weird food or Mm. things like that. So I had like a period of time where I was ashamed of being Filipino and Mm -hmm. the food that we eat and the food that my mom would prepare and just being like, I wish we just had like pizza or, you know, like things that everyone else is yeah. eating. And we had those things. We would always go to the same pizza shop every Friday. My parents still go. I can recall through young childhood into teenage years feeling a bit embarrassed or uncomfortable. And then also feeling when I would meet Filipino friends in school, feeling like a camaraderie or like mm-hmm. a feeling like not weird, so mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. And then as I grew up, up and came to New York, especially in the past 10, 15 years, seeing, you know, Filipino restaurants and Filipino chefs and that cuisine and not it being lumped in with like Asian fusion. Last year I went to accidentally, a friend of mine was like, hey, let's go to this food festival, food truck festival. And we went and it just so happened to be Filipino food. Like everything was Filipino food. And I remember taking all these photos and sending them to my family. Like anytime I eat anything that is of Filipino origin, I always send it to my family's group text and share with them like, oh, I went to this restaurant or I had ube ice cream or hala hala. I found hala hala, which is another Can dessert. Can you share? Actually, I'm curious. What are some of those flavors, the Filipino foods? Yeah. So there's ube, which has now become like this huge thing on Instagram, ice cream, especially or desserts. And it's a very vibrant color, but it's from a potato. And it has mm-hmm. kind of like a, I would liken it to a vanilla taste. But it's so vibrant in color and it's used in a lot of island cultures. So like Hawaii also uses it in Guam, but I believe it's derived from potato, but they make a lot of desserts with it. So I learned how to make like an ube pie with like coconut custard and it's so delicious. But I think what's really cool about that and what draws the attention on, especially Instagram, there's like donuts now and they use it a lot in dessert, but it's just visually so striking because it's such a vibrant, naturally vibrant color of purple mm. and it's very tasty. And so I, I feel like it n- lends itself more to like a vanilla versus like something rich and not like a dark chocolate. It's definitely more on the vanilla spectrum of, of flavor. I have and, never tried it. I'm so intrigued. Yeah. Oh, and it's <laughs> funny too, because it's one of those things now that you will start seeing it. I will. In, like everywhere. It's definitely becoming an option in ice cream shops and a flavor that you'll start seeing. I love it. Places. Yeah. What it's good were in other, pancakes too. <laughs> it's, oh, that sounds amazing. Your story about, you know, having an immigrant childhood and kind of actually merging this American lifestyle with, mm-hmm. this is, this has come up in several podcast episodes of mine. When in your life did you really start embracing Filipino food? Was there a period that you remember? Yeah, definitely. 
once I moved to New York, so maybe my mid 20s is when I, mm. because I was seeing it and like I was excited for when my parents would come visit and I would take them to like Jersey yeah. City where there's a lot of Filipino culture there and restaurants and bakeries. And then when I was 27 or 28, we went back to the Philippines for the first time. And wow. then so eating the food there and being with my family, my mother's side of the family, definitely shifted my not shame in being Filipino, but just my misunderstanding or feeling, mm. you know, somewhat bullied as a child and like letting yeah. go of that narrative and embracing and feeling a sense of pride in the food, especially. And then starting to prepare for it. So I've only recently started cooking maybe since 2017. And okay. some of that has been, you know, making dishes like chicken adobo or helping my that's, mom make lumpia. Right. Chicken adobo is like, that's the first thing that came to my mind. But I don't know how familiar I am with Filipino food, to be honest. Yeah. So I would say my favorite is chicken adobo. It's like our mm. family staple. Um, mm -hmm. It's so delicious. I have like a nephew who will eat it breakfast, lunch and dinner all day, every day. Like he is obsessed by it. We actually get him like t-shirts that say like, I love chicken adobo. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love yeah. it. And then lumpia. So what was interesting too, is that even as a child, like I would go to parties for friends and, you know, you'd bring food and I would always bring lumpia. And like, that was everyone's staple. Like I still run into like classmates and friends who are like, is your mom still making those egg rolls? Or even within that, like feeling othered, but then also knowing that like, that is like a huge thing for like our family parties and, mm -hmm. you know, family reunions, graduations is my mom's egg rolls or lumpia. Oh, those are egg rolls. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So those are egg rolls, but they call them lumpia in the Philippines. And my mom makes them like bite size. So normally they're about that big, like what you would normally see from a restaurant, but she makes them very little, like party sized wow. um, lumpia and she does different flavors and I love through the years I've witnessed her like explore because like my brother and his partner don't eat meat. So then she was like shifting and trying to make a variety of different foods. So I would say predominantly in Filipino food culture, it's heavy on meat. Mm -hmm. So it was re really cool to witness my mom like for Christmas trying to make egg rolls that had different fillings. And you dip them in a special sauce, which my mom keeps secret. So she refuses to tell us what's in. <laughs> but I have helped her like make the actual egg rolls and, oh, and then ponsit, which is a noodle dish. So those are my three favorites. And like, if you go to okay. any Filipino party or event, you will find those three varieties. And there's so many other variety of food, but those are my three favorites: chicken adobo, lumpia, and then ponsit. Oh my gosh. Okay. I could talk to you all day about Filipino food and part of me wants to, but I know I have to change the conversation topic. Yeah. But now oh, I'm yeah. like, I just wrote down <laughs> like <laughs> Filipino food. I don't know where I live. We don't have any Filipino restaurants, but you know, the way I, I explore culture is through cooking. So yes. I am so excited to try all of these things that you've just mentioned. So thank you for that. Yeah. Now we're going to jump forward a little bit and... <laughs> Can you please explain what it is you do? <laughs> yeah. What is it that you do? So I have a podcast called Head South Radio, which I launched this past February. And it's a podcast dedicated to removing the stigma and shame around conversations about sex, sexual well-being, sexual health, as well as relational well-being. That is amazing and so mm -hmm. needed. What, if you don't mind my asking, what drew you into this line of work? Was it just that you saw this need and there is such stigma and shame around talking about sex? And I mean, mm -hmm. my even 
this is a little personal, but my daughter's 13. And for me, as she gets older, I just kind of want to normalize because certainly as I was growing up, we never talked about sex. It was so uncomfortable. And I don't want that to be the same story for her. What drew you into this line of field? For the past 10 years, I've worked in hair care. But I can rewind back to in my teens, feeling very frustrated about sex education. Mm-hmm. And my mother and I have a very good relationship where we can talk about reproductive health. I, you know, spoke to her about when I was ready to start having sex. I could see myself in a relationship when I was 17 and see that, oh, the trajectory we're going on, I would like to start looking into birth control and mm. knew that we would probably be having sex. And so I spoke to my mother about it one day when she picked me up from swim practice and she took me to the gynecologist. I remember sitting in his office and him running down the different options of birth control, condoms, all of these things. And that was me at 17. And that was also me being disappointed with the public school sex education and not yeah. feeling like I had enough information. And I remember like we had sex education when I was in sixth grade. You know, they separated the boys and the girls and the girls learned about periods and their cycle and boys right. learned about, I don't know what, but, um, <laughs> and then in ninth grade, I went to a public school and I remember the teacher just talking to us about prevention. And it was a very brief, like one week, if you weren't in school that week, you missed it. And that was it. Like it was never yeah. brought up again. It was taught by a health teacher who was very uncomfortable with the subject matter themselves. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so definitely the students weren't comfortable enough to talk about it. And then that was ninth grade. So then when I was a senior 12th grade, I was, you know, dating and ready to start having sex. And so I just wanted to, I felt very strongly that I wanted to make informed decisions about my body. Mm. And I had that kind of relationship. So I, I grew up in a conservative family where it wasn't necessarily always talked about, but my relationship to my mother allowed that type of conversation. Yeah. And I remember then, you know, researching and going to the library and that was like the dawn of the internet and being able to research and pull things together. And I made a little notebook that I would share with my girlfriends about sex, about oral sex, Mm. about pleasure. And I like illustrated it and it was really cute. It got lost in the mix, unfortunately, where we would pass it around. And I remember we would sit in like our car and we'd be meeting boys or people and we would just be talking about things and like bringing these conversations up and I'd be answering questions and then I'd be like looking things up when they would ask me stuff. And so at that point, I realized that I probably wanted to be a sex therapist and didn't know that that Mm. was an avenue. I remember thinking that and then pursuing art, painting and illustration. That's what I went to school for was commercial art, but recognizing all along this whole time that I at some point would go back to that, go back to some way, shape, or form working within sexual health, sexual wellness, and relational well-being. I love that that seed was planted so young. Mm -hmm. And I think for many of us within the cycles of our lives, we do kind of neglect those, maybe not even neglect. It's just that our paths take us in different directions, but it's such a gift to come back to this passion. And it's so needed right now. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up because that's somewhat of what unlocked it, I will say, is that someone had recommended to me reading a book called Your Unlived Life by Robert Johnson. And it's about that part of our lives. At some point in our young adulthood, we start putting things away, putting them on the shelf. Like, oh, I can't live that dream. You know, it might be an athlete who decides like, oh, now's the time that I have to get an office job. I'm going to have a family. I can't pursue these things. So at some point we make a compromise in ourselves and we put it on the shelf. And if we don't 
kind of acknowledge that part of us. It lives underneath. Yeah. It's kind of still always there lingering in the subconscious. And it will come out in the form of a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what this book is uh, about. It's kind of uh, like, oh, that's what this is. It's the disconnect from our whole being and ignoring those sounds and those signals. And then we start taking it out on our partners. We start taking it out on our jobs or there's some type of frustration boiling up underneath us through the twenties, through the thirties into our forties. And then that's when it kind of implodes in some way, shape or form. And it, you know, manifests in different parts of our life. And that book is about that, like looking back and saying like, what is the thing that I might've given up on or put on the shelf or thought wasn't a value at that point, but maybe now in this mm. time. And it's not necessarily like, oh, quit your job, you know, divorce your partner and go do this crazy dream. It's <laughs> that's about the just crisis. A, yeah, that's the crisis. <laughs> it's the acknowledging that mm. part of you. And it's still a part of you, whether you pursue it or not. And so for me, it's pursuing it, but maybe in a different way. So I had looked into like going back to school to become a therapist or going into more of a deep dive, like one-on-one work as a coach or things like that. But to mm-hmm. me, having the 10 years of experience working in hair care and with brands and building and creating companies and products, I wanted to kind of still stay in that. I didn't want to lose that part of myself either. So that's where yeah. Head South Radio is starting as a podcast, but I'm currently you know, producing and making products to be launched as well. So it's going to be a brand on top of the podcast. That's amazing. Amazing. Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit, Food newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week, along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, you'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. So let's tie in food to our sexual health and our libido. How does food support or maybe even harm our libido Mm -hmm. and our sexual health? Because we never talk about this link, actually. No one ever talks about this link. No. It's sometimes mentioned, but it's mentioned after the fact, right? Yes, So like there's huge red flags and problems, and then it's brought up. And a lot of people, it's interesting because they, you know, they'll think of food in relationship to sex as like aphrodisiacs. And that's right. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not a dietitian. I have not studied food. I'm not a sexologist. I'm not a sex therapist. But what I can say is like, as a human who both (laughs) enjoys (laughs) sex and enjoys food, this is where my framing is coming from. And just from information Mm -hmm. and reading and just knowing my own body. So this is just from working with my own body, that absolutely foods affect us for a number of reasons. You have too much caffeine in a day and you're feeling jittery and wired. So if there's too much caffeine or there's things that kind of prohibit oxygen moving through the body, food can affect us physiologically within the body and then also emotionally, energetically. Mm -hmm. And so thinking of that and thinking of sex as both a physical and an energetic Mm -hmm. activity, food absolutely can affect it. And, you know, there's things like I'm sure if male identifying people go to a doctor because they're experiencing maybe erectile dysfunction, 
if they have a doctor who has a holistic approach, the doctor might say like, hey, let's add more zinc. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Because that helps support testosterone. And that can be the issue versus them being like, here, let me prescribe you Viagra. Good luck. Right, right. And so I think where food ties in, whether it's you're addressing an issue or sexual dysfunction, but also just your overall well-being. And if you're being mindful of the food you're eating, it can support a more satisfying sex life, whatever that means for you. And so I think there's foods for hormones, there's foods that support Mm -hmm. hormones, and then there's foods that, you know, detract or can cause issues. And so I think it's an important thing if you are experiencing sexual dysfunction to look at all of the factors, stress, you know, work, life balance, as well as diet, exercise, it's all connected. Yeah, it absolutely is all connected. And when Again, like I can only speak personally, but when I'm eating foods that I can really feel support me and nourish me, certainly I feel more vibrant and alive. And that influences our sex life. Like you said, we need the energy within us to be able to do these different activities. So fascinating. Do you know of specific foods that affect our sex organs? Yeah. For example, oysters have a lot of Mm. zinc, certain Mm. proteins. And so although oysters are aphrodisiacs, I think with me with aphrodisiacs, it's kind of like, it's not a like, ooh, it's date night. Let me have some oysters. And now I'm going to be like (laughs) ready to go. It doesn't actually work that way. I think it's just more of adding these into your diet and Mm. how you Mm -hmm. nourish yourselves and applying some of these foods. You know, chocolate helps with even just like a little piece of dark chocolate helps with energy. And so just adding that in at night could help. I'm a big fan of beet juice, especially during menstruation. Oh, interesting. A lot of athletes will drink beet juice because it moves oxygen through the body. And Mm. so especially during menstruation, I like to drink a lot of beet juice because then it helps with the blood flow. And I also just feel like I feel a little bit clearer versus when I don't drink beet juice or eat a lot of beets during menstruation. And so for Mm -hmm. me, that offers clarity. And I think what's most important about food and sex is probably eating foods that make you feel nourished, that make you feel comfortable, but also maybe that encourage blood flow and not blockages. Interesting. Because you need blood flow. All of our organs and our sexual reproductive organs need blood flow. So we need like for female bodied clitoris owners, we need blood to flow so that clitoris can enlarge, so that we can experience pleasure. And same thing for men to achieve an erection, you need blood flow. And so anything that's probably causing, you know, the blood to not flow or to get a little bit stuck or stagnant isn't ideal for a healthy diet, I think. So it's interesting that you mentioned beets because I always crave beets during my period, but I always thought it was the iron or like that content, but I'm always making beets during Mm -hmm. menstruation, which is so fascinating. But I love this idea of blood flow that just makes so much sense to me. Do you know Mm -hmm. of other foods that encourage blood flow? I don't have that for blood flow. But what I can say in my little notes is that vitamin B6 is great for production of hormones. And so that can be found in chicken, fish, potatoes, bananas. And then omega-3 fatty acids, which are found in salmon and Mm -hmm. mackerel, are great for sexual function by improving blood flow. The omega-3 fatty acids, yeah. Foods high in antioxidants, anti-inflammatory benefits usually Mm -hmm. help protect the blood vessels from damage. And so eating foods that are rich like beets, spinach, arugula. Yeah. 
these are all like anti-inflammatory foods. And that yes. completely makes sense to me because any kind of inflammation, you picture that and that feels mm-hmm. like it's constricting or restrictive. Yeah, anything that feels like tightening. I liken it to like things that look vibrant on your plate. It's like as simple mm-hmm. as that. So like beets. That's my one of my favorite things is like when I look at a plate and I'm like, oh, it's so colorful. It yeah, feels really yeah. good. And it's so beautiful. I'm always drawn to beauty and we're going to mm-hmm. get into pleasure. But I think we mm-hmm. start, you know, pleasure starts with with what we see. And when we yeah. are presented with a plate of food that's beautiful, like, oh, that pleasure starts immediately before we even taste anything. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, Let's talk about like timing, I guess. When we eat, how this affects our libido. Yeah, just go there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot because since starting Head South, I've been thinking about like timing of sex because I think for a lot of people, sex happens at night at the end of the day, if it happens at all, because of it happening at the end of the day. Not happening for me, sorry. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly, because we're exhausted. Oh my gosh, the worst time and for me and my husband, like, no, yeah. it's just we're exhausted at the end of the day with kids and jobs and all of that stuff. Not mm-hmm. to say it doesn't ever happen, but it's not our favorite time. Yeah, I think, but it's historically when it happens because people are going to bed and that's where yeah. sex often happens. So I've been thinking about that and kind of surveying people about time of day and also like within my own experiences, like realizing like, oh, I actually prefer sex in the morning. I prefer sex before, after a nap, like in the middle of the afternoon and not necessarily like when I'm going to bed. And actually this is improved. This is separate from food or sex, but it's improved my sleep. Oh, interesting. By like just shifting the expectations or shifting, you know, to, oh yeah, like morning sex versus Mm -hmm. like, you know, because with sex, our nervous system kicks in. And so we both need like the energy to output our sexual energy, but also energy to take it in. And then mm-hmm. after that, I'm like, I'm not ready to go to sleep. I'm yeah. not somebody that like has sex and then passes out. No, it's like, I can't. Oh, now I'm yeah. like, I'm wired now. So I think with that and then applying timing with food, it's so important with digestion. Like mm. I think a lot of people will go out for a big date night, have a big dinner, eat something that they probably never would normally eat Yeah, <laughs> and like celebrate. And then expect to come home and have sex. And you're like, I feel bloated. I feel tired. And then people start to feel rejected or dejected. Like, oh, we had this Mm. special night. Actually, our friend Bonnie, I was talking to her a little bit about this. And she had mentioned, she's like, it's funny because when you first start dating someone, you might eat a little bit lighter because you're like, oh, I don't know if we're going to go home Mm -hmm. together tonight. Or, you know, you kind of shift your mindfulness to the food. So then maybe you're able to digest a little bit better because you're eating not something so heavy, like a celebratory big steak and potatoes. And so she was saying that like, there's this different mindfulness in the dating period or the courtship. so true. Yeah. Because you're like prioritizing both getting to know this person and intimacy. Yeah. Over like, I need my steak and potatoes or like something heavy (laughs) and not that steak and potatoes is wrong, but just something that like, obviously that causes me to have gas or feel like uncomfortable for for other people. But I recognize that of like, oh yeah, there's a different mindset. And then somehow when the relationship progresses or people move in together, that shifts. And then another thing that Bonnie brought up and we were talking about is that often couples will then not eat the same foods. Mm. And I think that's important. Like it's Mm. really nice either to share your food and be like, here, Mm -hmm. taste this. There's something about how we connect. And so either making your meals and having the same thing 
Yeah. And that is a form of intimacy. That's a form of communication. Making food for each other, I think is important. But yeah, the timing and allowing time, like if you're going to do the big night out, maybe plan the meal earlier. Like don't book the Mm. reservation for like eight or nine. If it's something where you both want to have sex after, maybe it's earlier and then you like take a nice walk and digest and like connect and then allow the space because it's just there's too much going on in the body if the body's trying to digest the food yeah and those are in the same vicinity (laughs) overlapping areas in the organs to then try to and then you're just uncomfortable you're like I don't feel good in my body because my body's doing other work to then try to have sex well there's also this element like of this is again like pretty personal but if I drink alcohol with a meal, it numbs me. It's a numbing agent. So I find sex isn't as pleasurable as when I don't have alcohol in my system and I'm fully present because, Mm -hmm. you know, that alcohol numbs us a little bit. It kind of disconnects us and there's nothing wrong with it as far as like sex life goes. I just prefer to not. <laughs> so then yeah. maybe it's like before dinner, <laughs> like do it before mm-hmm. dinner or, or like you said, plan it. But you said something that I just think we want to hone in. It's like, what do you prefer? And I don't think, especially women, I don't think we even ask ourselves that question. Mm-hmm. Like, when does sex feel best? What do I want? What do I mm-hmm. want? And so... I think embracing that and experimenting for yourself because it'll be different for everybody and getting your partner involved in that experimentation process is so empowering. Then you can Mm -hmm. say like, have that discourse like after dinner, it's just, I'm just not in the mood usually and it has nothing to do with you, you know, to talk about it in this way. Yeah. And it's one of the factors for the pleasure gap. So just like there is a pay gap in the Mm. sexes. So Mm. speaking in terms of heterosexual relationships, if we were all honest with ourselves, a lot of female identifying people would rate their sex and their sexual satisfaction much lower than their male partners. So in a heterosexual relationship, the amount of orgasms, the amount of pleasure experienced. And one of the things that is very clear both in the pleasure gap, as well as in the pay gap, is that women are so used to not speaking up Mm, at the frequency that men are. And so I had a friend who was a coach for, you know, coaching women on how to kind of ask for raises and when, because men will do it every, like quarterly, they will Mm. continue to ask for a raise versus women who might do it annually. And so the same thing is reflected in the bedroom where you know, a man can experience an orgasm almost every time they are engaged in sex with their partner, whereas females will not, or they Mm. will lean into more of a performative or faking an orgasm and not knowing how to communicate with their partner because of their partner's fragility versus like advocating for themselves. Yeah. And what I like, and I can't remember if I've spoken to you about this, but it's Food is a great metaphor and analogy to communicate and learn about yourself. And so if you know what brings you pleasure, and that's the thing is that like women are so used to like mom eats last. That's like a thing. Like it's, and also like eating the burnt toast and, you know, Mm -hmm. being a little bit subservient and not, you know, asking for what I want and eating what I want and doing what I want and experiencing pleasure the way that I want. 
And so one of the ways that you can kind of shift that and empower yourself is through learning about what brings you pleasure outside of the bedroom. And one of my favorite ways of communicating about sex and pleasure is through food. Mm. And so like knowing what flavors make you feel good, what feels good in your body, what nourishes you, because those will translate whether it's, you know, you know, what like linens you like on your bed Mm. and how you want to be touched by your partner. And it changes and shifts. And so kind of allowing the, the the dialogue to happen. But you can start with just like, oh, I like spicy. Oh, I like it to be a little bit salty and bitter. I like very sweet. And then you can kind of see those those are the same things that you kind of like in the bedroom for some. You know, it's so fascinating. I actually have a newsletter all about pleasure. And in fact, mm-hmm. it's a newsletter that's paired with a brownie recipe, which is like my favorite brownie. But how I see pleasure is we often can have this notion that pleasure is something kind of to feel guilty about almost. But Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that if we can embrace our pleasure, it's an act of resistance. It's an act of sovereignty as a human. Mm -hmm. And it allows us to become almost like a full human to really get embodied. And food, you know, I come from the lens of food. So food is an amazing way to do this. But I've never really thought that as we embrace pleasure, mm-hmm. it, of course, that that then extends to every aspect of our life, right? Yeah. Yeah. So sensuality, like, is often associated with sexuality. And there is so much sensuality in sex, It's something that we experience and use all of our senses to have pleasure within intimacy. Mm -hmm. But our sensuality exists way beyond the bedroom, way beyond intimacy. It's an intimacy with ourselves. And sensuality is how we experience the world. And I think people misdefine that or feel uncomfortable when that word is used. But we are sensual beings because all that means is we are sensing the world around us. So how things Mm. taste, the temperature and And just allowing ourselves to feel good in how we sense the world is embracing our sensuality. It's embracing your sensuality regardless of where you're experiencing it. We resisted. And culturally, there's this interesting phenomenon that women are more sensual than men. And I do not, this is not, this is just a pure fabrication because (laughs) this is part of being human. And when we are in our sensual body and our life gets better, it's like Mm -hmm. we get out of that mind loop and we can really be present. My whole philosophy around intentional eating, which for my listeners, they know about this, but engaging the senses is a huge aspect of it. And it's really just a tool that we have to not only kind of have more pleasure, but also to gain presence, to be present Mm -hmm. with what's happening. Yeah. And those mindful eating techniques and being Mm -hmm. present with what you're consuming and what you're experiencing, that's intimacy and that's Mm -hmm. a relationship. Oh, wow. Yes, of course. It's intimacy with ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's a relationship with food. And then that translates into the, like you can use those tools the same tools that you're using to kind of educate people on a mindfulness and how they yeah. eat and what you know where they source their food and why all of these questions that we oftentimes default to like not even knowing the answers to and just kind of going through the motions that is reflected in our sexual encounters and so why not take those 
if you're if you're already like I'm sure wow. a lot of your listeners wow. are familiar with this work from listening to you. So then start to apply those in the bedroom and start to yeah. connect. And so it's the same as like my favorite thing is having a bite and being like, oh my God, that's the best bite. And it's something about the combination of textures. So like if I'm eating yeah. something and it's the textures, the flavors, and there's always, especially with salads, there's like this thing that I call perfect bite. And it yeah. happens and I get really excited and I have to just say it. No matter who I'm with, I'm like, oh, that was the perfect yeah. bite. And I love when they're sharing the same food because they know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's like a little bit of blueberry, yeah. a little bit of halloumi, a little bit of, yeah. you know, arugula. And there's just like this bitter, sweet, like, mm. and then like the softness mm. and the crunchiness. It's up there with orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite bite. <laughs> I dance. Like my family yes. laughs at me because when something's delicious, I just get so excited and I, I dance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it is like that orgasmic feeling of like, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Totally. And so then when you're having sex, when you're engaging in sex with a partner, why not be like, this is my favorite bit. And it might not mm. be just like penetration. It could be something. Yeah. It's just like the way that they touch your hair, the way that they're like stroking you. Those things, like say it, say it out loud, express it, and be like, "That's my favorite bit." <laughs> to I me, like, love it. It's your favorite bite and your favorite bit, and like, yeah, those things are the same. And it's just knowing what feels good and allowing yourself to express it, giving yourself yeah. full permission to express what feels good. Yeah, it's so funny because now I have this practice called intentional eating and it's really, really simple, but it's like deep breaths to really get in your body, engage your mm -hmm. senses, set an intention. And I love like bringing intentions into the bedroom, which I've never thought to do, but that can just be so simple. Like if you set an intention to be fully present or to communicate your desire, you will come back to that intention. And then the last part of intentional eating is gratitude. And this again, mm -hmm. like gratitude opens, it's softening and it opens, at least for me personally. So bringing gratitude into the bedroom is, I, I'm just, I'm so excited to bring intentional eating into the bedroom because that gratitude is not only, you know, within the intentional eating practice, it's for the food, but also for your body. So, mm -hmm. wow, if you go into sex, having so much gratitude for your body and this thing that you get to experience, how much more pleasure will come out of that. Yeah, it's exponential. It's it's intentional intimacy. Intentional intimacy. Love it. <laughs> and so those are practices. And it's funny because I think for some people, there's a lot of uncomfortableness with talking about sex. Yeah. You know, and there's times and situations where you should talk about sex before, way before you're actually in the bedroom with a partner. There's certain subjects and conversations that need to be had. But I think to your point of like, I absolutely apply breath work in mm. my, you know, interactions with sex with my partners. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely tune into how I feel. I tune into like how they feel. And I say it like your skin feels so soft or, mm. you know, I like just communicating those things is like sensory experience. Yeah. And then also absolutely after sex, sharing, sharing what you're grateful for. I love your body. I love how you feel. I love when you did this. I love how this felt for me. Always just adding that to sex, it just, for me and my personal experience, it has improved and made sex something completely different. It's a pleasure experience versus yeah. just like the act of 
sex. Physical experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like you bring in the, you know, for me, I talk about bringing the sacred into the kitchen and how we can use the kitchen as an opportunity to bring more sacredness into our lives. And Mm -hmm. it's the same thing with sex. And it really goes back to that communication and not being afraid to open those communication channels. Mm -hmm. Sex is sacred. And it's, yeah. it's an energetic exchange. You're exchanging energy with someone, whether the sex is casual, whether it's one time, whether it's with a longtime partner, it's all an energetic exchange, whether it's with yourself too. Like solo yeah. sex is mm-hmm. a practice and it's about mindfulness and experiencing your body and allowing yourself to experience pleasure and not yeah. be so reliant on outside sources, but really just hone in and work with your breath, work with your body. And so I think it's so important for people to start recognizing where we can be more intentional with intimacy. Mm, I love it. Kat, thank you so much. I just feel like my mind is just like totally expanded after this conversation. And thank you. So grateful for you. I have one more question, but before I get to it, can you tell people where they can find you? Yes. So you can find me at headsouth.world on Instagram and TikTok, as well as at Kitty Cat Meyer, K-I-T-T-Y-C-A-T-M-E-Y-E-R. So that's my personal Instagram handle. And then our website for the podcast is headsouthradio.com. Wonderful. Everyone needs to go listen to this podcast. It's amazing. My last question is, again, another question I ask all my guests, and it's how I finish all of my episodes. And it is, it is your last meal on earth. What would it be? Oh, hmm. I love asking this question. (laughs) Yeah. I would have to say it's probably some form of pizza and ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. You know what it is? It's in Italy, pizza and gelato. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That would be it for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food, and by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. I'm Nikki Sizemore, and as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.